Welcome to The Feeding Pod. I'm Bree, your co-host. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. And I'm Olivia, your other co-host, a registered dietitian nutritionist. We are here to bring multidisciplinary evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing research on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider. Hey guys, it's Olivia here. I'm with Bree and I'm with an OT today named Brittany and I'm going to turn it over to her to introduce herself. Hello, my name is Brittany. I am um, an outpatient pediatric occupational therapist, and I've been doing that for about seven and a half years now. Awesome. We are so happy to have you here because World Down Syndrome Day is coming up on March 21st. And so to kick it off, we are going to be talking about Down Syndrome and how what the fine motor implications are, how it affects feeding, and then we'll go into the nutrition side with Olivia talking about that. And so, um, yeah, we're just really happy you're here to give us the the OT side on this interdisciplinary journey. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Um, so I guess you just, we'll talk about kind of the fine motor skills, kind of how um, I look at something when I have a kiddo come in. Um, so I kind of imagine it almost like a little pyramid. So we have to just kind of start at the bottom and work our way up. So um, at the bottom, you know, we have, we've got to look at stability, we've got to look at bilateral coordination, and we've got to look at sensation. Um, So when we talk about stability, um, we really want to think about how they're sitting, how we're sitting at a table or a high chair, um, depending on the age of the child. Uh, We want to have really good core strength um, so that they're able to sit up nice and tall we're really looking for what we call a 90-90-90 position. So we want um, our bodies to be 90 degree flexion at our hips and at our knees and our ankles. So our feet are flat on the floor. That can be done either a high chair if there has if they have a little um, movable footrest, or even if it's at a table, putting like a stool or something under their feet just to give them that good base of support because any um, good oral motor skills are going to come from our whole body and our whole body needs that control. Um, yeah, I love that. Cause we, we talk about that all the time in like speech. And that's something that I've learned from OTs is like making sure that the positioning is appropriate for the child and supporting them in whatever way they need. And I always like to refer to if you have like for adults, for example, if you go and sit to have dinner and you're sitting on like a bar stool and the table's misaligned and you don't really have anywhere your feet and there's nowhere for you to like put your back up against you feel so disorganized that you're focusing so hard on just staying up that like how are you supposed to focus on the food that's ahead of you and so I mean it makes so much sense for those kids that like we have to look at their stability first and foremost when we're looking at those the feeding skills. Exactly. And with Down syndrome, you have the lower tone. So it's even more important that we have a good stable base for them um, to do that. Um, 
And then also we want to look at with the bilateral coordination, just being able to use both hands together. I mean, think about, you know, if you've got a bowl of cereal, you want to be able to hold that bowl and also have a spoon so that you can do those two things at one time. And then a sensation, which is huge. Um, so we have our senses that we know about, our vision, hearing, smell, taste, touch. And then there's also a couple more that is OTs we really look at. So proprioception, which is that kind of feeling of where your body is, um, that heavy work activities, and then vestibular sense, which is that movement. Um, and then also interoception, which is kind of a new um, thing in OT, but looking at kind of your inner feelings. So being able to feel that you're hungry, be able to feel that you're thirsty. Some of our kids aren't able to say, I'm hungry. They just are irritated and you're like, well, what's going on? Well, it's they're hungry, but they can't, they're not able to say that because their interception skills aren't great. So that's kind of where we really want to hone into um, doing a lot of sensory play. We do a lot of sensory motor work. So um, before my feeding sessions, I will always do an obstacle course. So we'll do lots of jumping, maybe some swinging, sliding, get lots of good active work in. Um, it also helps with your core strength. So then you've got, we're adding to that stability to be able to wake your body up, to be able to sit at the table and see all your food, know where it's going to, know that you've got to pick it up to put it to your mouth and just be aware of all of that. Um, and so then that's kind of the bottom part of that pyramid. Um, then we have the middle part where we look at dexterity. So looking at those like little pincher fine motor skills. So being able to pick up little pieces of Cheerios or little bitty puffs um, from the table. So it's really starting our self-feeding um, to be able to pick those up. Sometimes that's hard, especially with Down syndrome to get those little motor skills. So you can kind of help out a little bit by maybe putting it, putting a piece in your hand and even guiding their fingers with yours to be able to pick it up and just um, working with those. And then the very top of the pyramid, we've got them being able to eat. We can use a spoon and a fork. Um, so we need all of those base skills. We need the stability, working our hands together, dexterity, sensation. We need all of those to be able to eat. I really like the way you laid that out of like, we always, like you have to consider the foundation before yeah. you can go towards that peak. Because if you just immediately start at the top, you're missing all yeah. these things. And so, yeah, you might get it once in a while, but like the consistency of it across is, is not going to help. And especially in this population. I'm sure Olivia, you can speak to that and yeah. you're seeing it with Daniel too. Yeah. I mean, he totally missed a lot of these foundation pieces. So, I mean, we're going back to even building some of the foundation pieces. Like we're still working on some of the dexterity. We're still working on skills with self-feeding with the utensils. Um, we're just, we're taking it back to the basics, even with, um, you mentioned the pincer grasp. Daniel's not that great with a pincer grasp and he is 13 years old, but no one worked on that base level pyramid with him. So now we're having to go back and build up from there. Yeah. And I like this too, because, and you know, I'm speaking from the SLP side of like many SLPs just think like, oh, the, e the OT is just going to like help with utensil use. And it's like, well, no, there's a lot of those foundational things that have to happen first. Right. Um, and don't ever tell an OT that they'll be very offended <laughs> because you all have no, so much more to offer. 
Well, and something else I want to add in that's really cool that Daniel's getting to do is he's actually having a co-treat with a speech therapist and an OT for his feeding therapy, which we have made gigantic strides having the OT and the speech therapist with him. I mean, now we are putting things in a microwave and we're microwaving things. We're making our own bowls of cereal. Granted, it was with the suggestions that the OT made of getting like small milk cartons for him and already pre-portioned out containers of cereal. So he wasn't having to dump the big container of cereal into the bowl, but just small things like that have been. Yeah. Just to build his independence with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, not, I mean, it's like, it's so helpful and ideally, yeah, you get to work with both at the same time and it's wonderful. Doesn't always happen, but that's why we, we have to still initiate that networking and initiate that interaction with the OT to find out the best course of action. Um, Because even just having that conversation can help so much to build that foundation because here we are as SLPs, like up at that tippy top, trying to work on these skills. But if that foundation is forgotten about, we're not going to get anywhere. And even talking about, um, Brittany, I'm sure you can talk more on this, but like having the child active and like getting them regulated and like ready to go first and how that impacts. And like, I'll just put that at you, like how that impacts their learning ability. Oh yeah. I mean, you have kids. I mean, if you're not organized or regulated, you're not going to learn anything in whatever setting, whoever it is. Um, I always, I tell parents all, all the time, we all have our regulating activities that we do. You just don't know it. So like some people will like shake their foot while they're sitting there listening, or some people will tap a pen on the table to try to keep themselves alert and awake. And our kids, they don't necessarily have that innate nature to do that. So we have to help them with that. So getting that obstacle course in, and I, I think I do obstacle courses with all of my kids because you can just manipulate them to whatever you want to do. Um, so if I have kids that are under responding, so with that low tone, typically we'll get an under responsive kiddo that's, you know, maybe doesn't respond to their name very well. Um, just kind of that low arousal, kind of sleepy, that Eeyore type of kiddo, you know, I want to get them on the swing and we'll spin a little bit and then we'll go jump on the trampoline and crash. Um, cause that's going to wake their body up and they're going to be able to come to the table and eat. Uh, and if I have a kid on the opposite end of the spectrum where they can't, they're bouncing off the walls, they're not regulated either. So we've got to figure out some organizing activities. So again, I'll get them on the swing. Just maybe we'll go back and forth this time for a more calming, regulating activity. Um, I have kids carry like huge bean bags all through the clinic just to give them some of that heavy work input that's really going to calm them down for them to be able to come to the table, sit down and be ready to eat. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So kind of, you know, building off of what we've just discussed. So what are some of those other things that may be going on more specifically to a child with Down syndrome? Um, So a lot of times there's that slower processing of sensory information, kind of like what I just talked about where, you know, a a loud noise may not come to them um, as, as quickly as it would to us. When it comes to food, um, tend to get a lot of kids that may not be able to get a good lip closure, food falling out of their mouth when they drink, you know, liquid comes spilling out. So getting their, their whole body alert. And then we also want to think about the mouth and getting that ready for some sensory information. Um, so sometimes I'll, if a kid is okay with it, I always ask them first because 
you know, sometimes sensory input can be too much. Um, so sometimes I'll use a vibrating toothbrush um, if the kid's okay with it. Sometimes I'll just give them a cup of really cold water. Some of my kids love sour candy. So we'll give some sour candy first that, it, you know, wakes up those taste buds, wakes up your mouth and um, getting ready to go with that. Um, also have difficulty a lot of times holding utensils um, when it comes to regular spoons, maybe a lot harder for little hands to kind of grab those. So we do, you know, recommend some different types of spoons. I've seen the grabbies. I don't know if you guys have seen the little forks yeah. and stuff. Those are super cute, easy. Uh, but if your kiddo hasn't really got a good grip on a fork or a spoon yet, then those are kind of good transition tools. Uh, and then we also always recommend a spoon with a shallow bowl where kids can just kind of dip it in and it it's not going to fall out. It's not, they're not going to have to really close their lips and really work very hard to get the food off of the spoon. It's just going to kind of come out. Yep. And then I also love the, um, like the silicone plates that kind of stick to um, the trays. So the, I use those with my own kids because they don't go flying in the floor. But you also with your kiddos with Down syndrome, you know, it helps them with that bilateral coordination again, like they don't have to quite work as hard to hold that bowl, they can, we can still work on it. We can still encourage like, okay, one hand goes on the bowl, one hand goes with your fork or your spoon, but they don't have to work as hard to hold it there. Um, what else do we have? Like drinking, um, a lot of times you get kiddos with that, if they have the low muscle tone, um, you know, decreased sensory info coming in, they're biting their cups or um, pushing their tongues out. Um, again, increasing that sensory awareness um, also, sometimes just tapping their lip will help them, you know, um, be able to drink a little bit better, hold their, hold their water in. Um, and then, honestly, the easiest thing is just giving them verbal cues to be able to say, hey, remember to close your mouth when you chew. Sometimes we're not thinking about it, especially if their tone's low, you're just kind of chewing away. But when somebody says, oh, hey, your mouth's open while you're chewing, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do that. No, that makes sense. And I see the biting of the cups a lot too, with just like, we don't have good jaw stability. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for them to like grade their mouth appropriately, like closing around the cup to be able to take a drink versus like, if we can just bite it, I can hold it there. And then I can tilt because it's like, it's a huge sensory, like not sensory, but like sensory motor experience of like holding the cup, tilting it while also stabilizing your mouth to not spill it. Um, so I see that a lot with just like the jaw stability too, which again, goes into that lower tone because our jaw just can't, we go from like open to close, but that in-between movement tends right. to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of bridging into the next part of just kind of going into some common feeding problems. So, um, I think, you know, Brittany, you kind of have it put into like oral motor skills, tone and strength. And so let's just kind of you know, we'll start hitting both points from, uh, I know in this area, a lot of speech therapy and OT is going to overlap. Um, but you know, of course it just becomes if you're trained in feeding or not. So we'll just kind of go through it, uh, as best we can here. <laughs> okay. So let's start with, um, progression of the oral motor skills. Okay. So when we're thinking about 
the oral motor skills in kiddos with Down syndrome. So as we've touched on, there's low tone. What I also notice is because of this low tone, we tend to have more difficulty with endurance. So sometimes we have strength because I'll notice with these kiddos that they want to chew, like they have a desire to chew. And so these are my kiddos that I'm usually using some type of oral oral tool to just be like, okay, just chew because either they're going to try to bite their fingers, they might be teeth grinding, they're clenching, um, just different things going on because they have that desire to chew, but it's not always efficient once you put the food into play. And so I noticed like we, yes, we can like open and close vertical, which kind of goes into what we were talking about with like, they can either open or close, but that in-between movement tends to be more difficult. And so I think that's where the breakdown of like rotary mastication is a lot harder. So we see a lot of like tongue chewing, um, more mashing and just that vertical mastication because we have that decreased control and stability and endurance to, to do those in between movements. If that makes, if that makes sense. Um, Daniel definitely hands down, he's a teeth grinder and he will sit there and grind his teeth all day long but with chewing we are not proficient at all yeah that's where we lack Mm -hmm. and I think too that goes into the tongue coordination because I tend to see decreased lateralizations of the tongue we have that low tongue posture in the mouth there's open mouth tongue low Um, sometimes it's even protruding low And so that's that coordination because of that low tone, the tone's not just like, you know, in our face, it's also in our tongue. And so it's a lot more difficult to be able to get those movements going. And I think Brittany, that kind of plays that role in, even with oral motor skills, we have to think from the sensory side. So like, what can we do to stimulate the, the awareness Mm -hmm. of the tongue within the oral cavity? Sometimes I'll get like a little lollipop. And so we'll work on doing some lateralizations with their tongue and lollipops always great for motivation. I was going to say highly motivating, but like a lollipop. (laughs) Um, So that's typically what I'll kind of start with. um, If I notice a kid needs some help with that kind of stuff, just to try to get, you know, with a lollipop too, you're also getting that sensation that, you know, extra sweetness kind of is still a little bit alerting. So any of those kind of activities I like to do. Um, I also like to play a fun game too, if my kiddos are able, some aren't, um, but with a straw, we'll have cotton ball races across the table. So we'll get straws. Um, if I have a kid that has a little bit more trouble, I might get a shorter straw, mm-hmm. um, but we'll um, see who can beat the other one and try to like blow the cotton ball across the table. Very cool. I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that's motivating for some of those kids. (laughs) Daniel will not do a lollipop by the way. So I actually gave him one the other day thinking that that would be something that he would like, but I guess the, uh, actually having to use the tongue, he, nope. (laughs) Because it's hard, which makes sense though. Like, you know, sometimes we were like, oh, this is great. This is going to be a motivating activity, but because it's difficult for them, they would to just not do it. Yeah. He shut down and threw the lollipop away. He, (laughs) nope wasn't having it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes into play of like, and, and this is a little generalized of treating all kids, but like considering their zone of proximal development. So like not pushing them too hard. And of course you would have no idea that that was going to be too difficult for him, but it's a perfect example of like, yes, we need to push 
our kiddos, but if you push them too far, they're just going to not like, they're just going to shut down. And so considering that zone of like, okay, where can I make it just a little bit harder so that we can make progress without tipping them off the scale? Um, We call it the just right challenge. So we want it to be that a little bit challenging, but not to the point where we, we can't do the rest of our session because once your kid is like that, like they're done with you and you've got to rebuild that trust with, especially yeah. when it comes to food, uh, food is just, it's one of those things like kids can't control a lot of what happens, but they control what goes in their mouth and they're going to stick to their guns. So they've really got to trust you and they've got to know that you're going to be there to help them. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, so kind of going a little bit of a step further from the tongue coordination would be the coordination of mouth movements for swallowing. And I mean, we know that feeding and eating and swallowing is like, it's a multi-complex system. Like it involves so many different aspects to be able to effectively chew your food, lateralize your bolus to the molars, bring it back to the center, anterior to posterior transition, like all of those steps that go into play. And so with the kiddos with Down syndrome, it can be hard to coordinate all of those moving parts at once. And so that also plays into like where the OT role of stabilizing the child and getting the appropriate positioning is so important because without that, we can't expect them to coordinate all those other systems. Something else just of note is that um, there can be a more sensitive gag reflex. I often wonder, this is just like my opinion or like just a theory that I have, is that is the gag reflex actually more sensitive or is it just that it's triggered more because of the oral motor impairments, if that makes sense. Um, and so like, yes, there's going to be sensory things going on, but I also wonder if it's like, it tends to just get triggered more because there's a loss of control in the oral cavity. Um, I've wondered that too with Daniel, because things like brushing his teeth, if you get too far back, even just back there with the molars, he'll sometimes gag with it. And Mm -hmm. he also has that sensitive mouth to begin with. So we can't use a vibrating toothbrush on him. Um, even whenever he just uses a regular toothbrush, there's a lot of giggling going on because he says it tickles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like a really heightened sensory yeah. experience. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay. So then going into muscle tone and strength and the, oh, excuse me. I missed this part. One other kind of like overview is just that there's a delayed eruption of teeth. And so that's something important to consider, especially in the infants that are going to be starting solids and you're moving to onto more difficult foods, just keeping that in mind. Of course, many of our kids can eat regular solids. Um, There's a lot of, um, yeah, and there's a lot of research, um, really just new research on using baby led weaning with Down syndrome, because again, they have that innate desire to chew. And so using those chewable solids can be of benefit. Um, but there is still that delayed eruption of teeth that often occurs. Um, Brittany, I'm going to have you kind of take over this part. Um, cause I think it's just, it's one that either of us can do, but so that way I'm not just talking the whole time. Um, okay. So Brittany, I'm going to kind of go to you now to talk about the muscle tone and strength in the lips and mouth. Okay. Um, so yeah, with muscle tone and strength, um, you know, in the mouth, definitely have difficulty with lip closure, um, with bottle feeding and with cup drinking. Um, you know, a lot of times we're slow to progress to a cup. I have most of my kiddos with Down syndrome, they love their sippy cups because 
you know, they don't really have to work quite as hard to keep it in their mouth. Um, they don't have to quite have that good lip closure like on a straw or even an open cup to have that much control. We talked about earlier, we have to have so much control of your mouth to drink from an open cup. Um, so that's definitely one thing to consider. I uh, also, sorry to interrupt you. I, I also see a lot of times with like them wanting to hold on to the sippy cup is they can still use their tongue to stabilize and like cup around it. And then I will see them try to do the same thing with the straw. Mm-hmm. So, like they use their tongue as like the lower closing side of the straw instead of their lip. Um, and so, and, and, you know, I think that goes into like the low tone and the loss of coordination and like the stabilization and all of those parts play a role in it. But it's just interesting. You say that about your patients as well. Cause I noticed the same thing is like, they either don't want to get off the bottle or if they went to sippy, it's a really hard to get them off the sippy cup because it's just so much easier. It's more lax. They don't have to work so hard. Yeah. And then also difficulty, you know, with the lip closure for when you're going to a spoon, Um, And again, that's why we recommend like those really shallow bowls, almost like a flat spoon um, so that they're not having to work as hard to get um, it closed. So then you have um, a little bit slower progress when you're going from a bottle and then going to um, baby foods or table foods. Um, So doing again that if you're doing baby foods or um, like a puree, doing that flat spoon. Um, I even have one spoon that is flat and also has a textured underside. And it's my favorite spoon in the whole world because it's got the flat spit, flat bowl, but then you've also got that awareness and alertness that their tongue gets whenever it goes in their mouth. Um, and then also doing like some soft mashable foods like bananas and avocados are great. Um, and then also we have a poor like oral strength, um, just fatigue with chewing. You know, it, it takes a lot of work to eat. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat something like really chewy or that's something that you've got to really crunch on for a long time, we get tired. And our kiddos with Down syndrome is that times 10. Um, so we've really got to be aware of that. I try to work on the um, oral muscle strength. Um, and that's where like the kiddos, because it is so difficult, you know, going into, like you said, that just right zone is important because these might be our kids who need to be on a soft solids diet or need some supplemental feeds, you know, even if it's orally, but they're drinking something to help with that nutritional intake while they're building their skills because they can't effectively consume adequate nutritional intake on like an age appropriate diet, but you can work on getting there, but you, you just might have to, it's going to be a little bit slower. This is where something like a pediatrician could come into play. But also whenever you are weaning that child onto foods, making sure that you're offering those softer, easy to chew foods that you don't have to work so hard with. So maybe providing like two purees with a finger food. So they're still having to use their chewing skills with the finger food, but then offering something that's more soft and easier to get down like a puree after they've worked hard. Yeah, absolutely. Because we don't ever want to not give them the opportunity to learn the skill. We want to make sure that the opportunities are still provided that, you know, even if we're like, well, you know, soft solids are super easy. It's efficient. Like, let's stick with that. We still want to provide the opportunity to do those more difficult foods because the more we can practice the more difficult foods, 
the more we can make those connections, the more we can, we can build strength and endurance to where the softer foods are even easier now. And we can start to incorporate some more age appropriate foods. And I think just also building on within these, you know, using things like the spoon that has like the flatter head on it and stuff is so important from the child's like independence level, because it allows them to be able to feed themselves. It allows them to like, you know, it's not falling off the spoon as much. They can, you know, easily remove it from the spoon because they don't have that deep bowl. However, we still want to give them an opportunity to use a bowl, to use a spoon with a deep bowl. Cause we want them to practice that, you know, like labial scooping and to be able to build that strength in their upper lip. But we also want to work on the child's independence and, and what's functional for them, you know, and in some of these situations, like, especially with Down syndrome, like, okay, let's assess where this, where the child's at, what functionally can we do to improve their quality of life, the family's quality of life and their nutritional intake without getting like, so set in stone of like, they absolutely have to be able to get that labial closure on the spoon like it, you know it, it you, this almost goes back to the pyramid where you gotta start and then build the skills up mm-hmm. exactly exactly um the last kind of oral motor thing that that we want to touch on is the tongue coordination which we went over a little bit but you know there's going to be a lot of that excessive tongue protrusion low posture tongue sticking out um and this you know we'll, we touch on this a little bit kind of at the end of the session today, but, um, there can often be airway stuff going on. So enlarged tonsils and, or adenoids. And so that can play a role into why they have that open mouth posture. But if you have all of those, all of those things have checked out or, you know, have had procedures done that, that are like, okay, well, our airway is good. You might still see it because we still have low tone. Yep. And it, it just, it happens with kiddos with Down syndrome. And so, you know, we have to work to be able to make them functional, knowing that it, it might not ever be that we have tongue in closed posture all the time. It just, it just might not. Um, and so it's important to also consider just like the function behind it, the why behind it, and what are the other factors that play a role in it. So we're going to have a little bit of difficulty because of that lower tone, you know, with tongue retraction. And so that's pulling the bolus back. So a lot of these kiddos, I will see oral residue that's left over post-swallow because we just have a harder time bringing the bolus together and actually fully retracting it back for a swallow. Um, Also decreased tongue lateralization. So oftentimes um, I'm recommending to families go ahead and place to the molar area let their tongue go get it from there. It's already on the molars, more efficient chewing. And if the child's able to feed themselves, you know, just providing those verbal cues of like, Hey, why don't you try to bite on the side that might, you know, and, and if the child finds out that it helped out a little bit, okay, that's going to help. We do it as adults all the time. You know, if there's a food that's more difficult to bite into, if you're chewing, I get the Trader Joe's dried mango all the time because I'm obsessed with it. But that is one that I literally have to put on my molars and like bite and pull out because I need more strength to be able to do it. So we can't expect these kids or really any kids for that matter to do that from the front. Like sometimes we do have to just go ahead and bite from our molars. Um, And so that lateralization going ahead and putting it over there, the tongue's going to have to lateralize in order to bring it center to retract, to swallow. And so you're promoting tongue lateralization without taking the task to be too hard where they have to lateralize it themselves. Yeah. That's one big thing that they're working with 
Daniel on um, because he just, that tongue lateralization is not there. So we're really focusing on putting our food straight to our molars and then having to chew and then use that tongue lateralization. Um, and I mean, there's times where his therapist has even come out and told me, you know, we had to use mesh feeders today because we were just not, there was no coordination. Everything was just going all over the place and it wasn't safe. Um, we do have instances where we get calls from school where he's choked at school and different things like that. So Daniel's definitely one of those high risk kiddos that just doesn't mm -hmm. seem to have awareness of what's in his mouth or how to lateralize it at all. And I think that's a good point too, because I often see this and I'm sure Brittany, you can speak to this as like overstuffing and pocketing happening, happening a lot with this population because of that decreased like sensory awareness yeah. of our oral cavity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the time. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I do see with, um, with Down syndrome is the pocketing. It goes right in um, by their gums and I get with the tongue lateralization, it's hard to get over there. Um, and get all the food out. And if you're not even aware it's there, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. And that's what, like, they'll get some of it, but they have the decreased awareness. And so they got some of it. They, they think they got all of it and yeah. it's hard to get the tongue over there. So they're not checking it again. Like we, you know, we, our tongue is constantly moving. We're constantly feeling on our teeth, all of those things. And so you know, if you're, if you have trouble lateralizing to begin with, and then you have decreased sensory awareness, you're like, I know it was there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the overstuffing occurs too, because it takes a bigger bolus for them to detect yep. like, and for their body to go into that. Cause like chewing and swallowing is like a semi automatic, like semi volitional. So like some of it's not volitional and then some of it is. So some of it's just reflexive, but then some of it is like, we have to be aware that we're putting food in our mouth. And so the self-feeding helps with that. Like, Oh, it's going into my mouth. But if, if their sensory, I guess like sensory processing is, is diminished, it's going to take a lot more and a lot longer for them to detect that it's in their oral cavity. So that kind of goes into this next part. Did you put this part in or did Olivia put that too? Olivia put that in. She, I was reading it. It's so great. Oh, girl, <laughs> killing sorry. it. Also, sorry, my cat's like going crazy. So I keep <laughs> muting and letting her in and out because <laughs> no, you know, you're fine. You're I don't know what's wrong. Right, I'm going to let you talk about that though. Cause like sensory stuff is, I mean, I do a little bit, but like, I'm gonna let you talk about that. So, okay. Okay. So kind of going into you know, the next area we're going to talk about is sensory awareness. So like under or hypo sensitivity and then over hyper sensitivity. Right. Um, so I guess I tend to get more of the hypo sensitivity. So the under awareness kiddos with Down syndrome, um, you know, they're just not quite aware of what's on their mouth. A lot of times you get food all over their mouth and they have no idea it's there. Um, again, with the overstuffing, because you don't quite feel what all is in your mouth, you need so much more input to really know what's going on. Um, so with those kids, again, that's when I try to do some things that to increase their arousal level, to increase their awareness of what sensory information is coming in. Um, so getting, getting their bodies moving, that's honestly the easiest thing is to get your whole body moving, um, like even marching. So if you're at home, like marching to go wash your hands before dinner is a great, just kind of wake you up kind of activity. 
um, you know, again, if you, if your kid likes a vibrating toothbrush when they don't, obviously don't use that, um, you know, swings and trampolines, just kind of getting your whole body moving, even like having a dance party before dinner. If you've got a, like, just really under aware kid, like let's have a dance, let's have a five minute dance party before dinner. And then we'll go sit down at the table, just something good to get them awake and alert, ready to eat. Um, and then we have our over awareness kids. So our hypersensitive kids, um, our picky eaters, um, or problem feeders that are only eating a few foods. Um, they may have things where they don't like hot foods or don't like cold foods. Um, it's, it's so interesting when you meet a kid that does not like ice cream because it's too cold, but there are those kids, they're just too sensitive to it. Um, so with those kids, a lot of times I, we just play with food. Like I don't, in my feeding sessions with those kids, especially in the beginning, like I'm not expecting them to eat these foods. I am just, our expectation is we're going to have fun and we're going to play and we're going to get the pudding and we're going to paint a picture on the window and we're going to get this peanut butter and we're going to um, put it on the celery and we're going to put little raisins on it and make ants on a log. Like we're just going to have fun with food and see that it's not a scary thing. Um, it's a fun thing. Um, and we also want to kind of carry that over to home to where it's not a, oh, you have to eat two more bites of this or you can't get up from the table. We want it to be a fun experience. We want to, you know, see that food's not a scary thing when their body is telling them this is scary. And that's what I always tell parents, like when our kids are really sensitive to food or any, really anything, that sensation is telling their body to either run or fight somebody. They do not like it. It's not going to happen no matter how much you try, they're not going to do it. Um, I also even, you know, going back to kind of whole body things, doing calming activities before we then have to come and sit down. Um, so I do, if I'm doing an obstacle course, I really want to kind of do it maybe at least five times is what I aim for to get our bodies really organized. Um, again, the marching helps because it's giving your body that really good proprioceptive input. So that heavy work is really getting their body, their joints compressed and um, giving their bodies just that calming feeling. Um, some kids really like hugs, um, massages on their arms and legs with some lotion, just something to get their bodies calm and ready to come to the table to where there might be something on the table that is scary to them, but our bodies at least are ready and willing to come to the table. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, because I think, you know, going back to what you said, if their bodies are not ready, they're not going to be prepared to learn a new skill. They're not going to be prepared to interact with something new at all. Just, you know, just like with us, if we're feeling anxious or we're feeling overwhelmed, it's going to be really hard to try to tell me to do something because I'm going to be in shutdown mode. So that's when I tell my husband to bring me the weighted blanket. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Love the weighted blanket. Um, okay. So kind of transitioning away from the oral motor and sensory side and going into the nutrition side. So Olivia, I'll kind of let you uh, give us a quick overview of some of the nutritional things to think about. Yeah. So I'm just going to start off with an overview and then we'll go into some issues that they typically have like heart disease and GERD and all of that fun stuff. Um, so typically speaking, your Down syndrome kids, because they have the lower muscle tone, 
they're not going to need as many calories as your typically developing child. So their daily calorie needs are about 10 to 15% less than the child without Down syndrome. And they're going to have the lower metabolic rate because they have the lower muscle tone. Typically, these kids also just have a lower activity level. Um, they're not as active as their peers. They're just not going to be doing as much. I mean, I can tell you, Daniel, much rather would sit on the couch and watch TV than do something that's active. Taking him on a walk is a big deal. We might shut down three or four times because it's hard work. Um, they're just not driven by that harder work. If there's a hill, you can forget it. Daniel's going to look at that hill and say, oh no, we go home now. Okay. So, I mean, it's just things like that. They're not as active. Um, now that's not to say that your Down syndrome child isn't going to be active. There are some that have that, I guess, more muscle tone than average because I've seen some of them that they have the six pack of abs and they're super fit and they like to work out. Um, but your typical Down syndrome kid's going to have that lower muscle tone and not need as many calories. Um, they also have their own separate growth charts. Um, I have found that not all doctors know this or use this because even whenever we go to some of Daniel's specialists, they don't use the Down syndrome growth chart and they give me the printout of, oh, your kid's in the like one percentile. Well, yeah, he's in the one percentile because he's going to be slower to develop than his typical peers. Um, so making sure that your pediatrician, specialist, whatever, is using that own separate growth chart but then again, growth charts aren't always accurate and aren't always what's best to be going off of. We tend to look at growth charts and think, oh, we need to be in the 50th percentile. That's what we should be aiming for. But just like with your regular kiddo, they're all going to be different. As long as they're trending the same way on that growth chart, that's what we're looking at. So if your kid started in the fifth, they're probably going to stay in the fifth the whole time or close to that. Um, same for like your typical developing kid, I'm sorry, but if your kid's in the 98th percentile, that doesn't mean that they're overweight and fat. That just means that they're 98th percentile and that's where they should kind of stay towards. Um, 50th is just what the average is, but we don't need to aim for average. We've all got different genes. Yes, we do. <laughs> what our growth and development is. And so, you know, just staying on that. And even, you know, this is, this is a side note, not related to Down syndrome, but even within that, like there might be a little variation that occur yeah. between doctor visits, but you know, as long as the growth is an upward trend overall, that's what we're hoping to see. Yeah. And to play on genetics, I mean, if you look at all the Down syndrome kids, they're not all the same. They still have their own set of genes that make them either on the smaller side or maybe on the larger side. I mean, looking at Daniel, if you compare, compare him to the typical developing Down syndrome kid his age, Daniel should be a lot chunkier, but Daniel's tall and skinny, which is not characteristic of a typical Down syndrome kid. I mean, he's almost as tall as me. Granted, I'm only five foot, so it's not like he has to grow a whole lot to be as tall as me, but still for him to be 13 and almost five feet tall, but then he weighs only 85 pounds. Um, he's just a skinny little stick. <laughs> now, vitamin and mineral recommendations. So there's some recommendations, but there's not a whole lot of research on this. Um, so typical developing infants, we need the iron, we need the vitamin D. 
they're not going to necessarily need an iron supplement. Um, same with your typical developing infant. We just want to make sure that they're consuming high iron foods. Vitamin D, if they're breastfed, either the mom needs to be taking a supplement or if they're formula fed, your formula provides your vitamin D. Or if they're breastfed, you can give them the vitamin D drops. Because they're slower to progress into solids, I would continue that vitamin D a little bit longer. I still give my infant vitamin D. Well, he's not an infant anymore. I don't know why I keep calling him that. But 17-month-old, I still give him vitamin D because the majority of Americans are low with vitamin D. Um, common concerns with toddlers, your calcium, vitamin A, folate, and iron again. So if you're not consuming the foods that are high in calcium, vitamin A, folate, and iron, then yes, look at a supplement, but I would get lab values drawn before I supplement anything. Zinc deficiency is the most common um, deficiency among all age groups of kids. Um, once again, get the lab values drawn before you supplement. That's just my big thing is try to get it in with your food. Don't supplement unless you're told, hey, I really need this. All right, so back into of why they might need some supplementations. So there's a few metabolic differences in Down syndrome. And this kind of comes into play with your folate metabolism and your zinc metabolism. And this comes in with gene expression with DNA synthesis. Um, so I'm going to kind of read this off a little bit. This is from a textbook that I stole from. So basically an overview of the interactive and inter interdependent reactions involved in cellular one carbon metabolism. Um, there's an emphasis on the two major metabolic functions of these pathways. So normal DNA synthesis and repair and normal cellular methylation I'm going to get tongue-tied, cellular methylation reactions. So the two major functions at the intersection of the folate and B12 dependent methionine synthesis reaction, which regenerates methionine from homocysteine, and at the same time, it generates metabolically active THF for DNR and DNA and RNA synthesis Basically, it's saying that right there where that chromosome 21 is, um, there could be a deficiency with the folate and with um, zinc metabolism, just because right there where that 21st chromosome, that's going to play a big factor into DNA synthesis. Overall, the textbook said basically supplementation could be beneficial, but studies need to be conducted to really see if there's any benefit at all for it. Um, so from there, I would just say, if you want to supplement, you can supplement. There's probably no harm in it. You just might get some really expensive pee out of your child. That's usually <laughs> what I say with supplements. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, that's where, you know, just if, if you are concerned about any of these things going on, just get the lab work and then you yeah you'll know for sure if you, if you need to be using any supplements and really, I feel like this is only of a concern if the if child does not, not do a wide variety diet. So like might be more concerned in our more hesitant eaters that only have a couple of foods in their repertoire, but if they'll eat a variety, um, of foods, but maybe you're just modifying them to softer or purees or things like that, they're probably still able to get most of the nutrition yeah. that they need. Most definitely.
So one big thing with these kids when they develop is establishing healthy eating relationships. So I know Brittany touched on this a little bit earlier with kind of like the hunger cues, the satiety cues, them really not honing in on their cues or being able to communicate them. Um, because Down syndrome, they're slower to progress with this, um, with their communication skills. It's a lot harder for them to tell you when they're hungry and it's a lot harder for them to tell you when they're full. I also I go ahead and tell you. I was go gonna I also notice with um, Down syndrome that a lot of times they will tell you they're hungry but not so much of the fullness. Um, yeah. The satiety cues tend to be a lot more suppressed. So like hunger is felt like strongly, but fullness is like, it's, it's like a difference of like hyposensitivity and hypersensitivity. So like hunger is hypo and, or hyper, and then the fullness is like hypo. It's like not yeah. as much. And I think it goes back to almost that sensory input. So is there a delay and they're just super hungry by the time they say that they're hungry? So then is there a delay with the satiety like and they're not, yeah. And it takes them a little bit longer to make that connection of, oh, I'm full. Now with Daniel, I think because no one ever established the healthy eating relationship with him, his big thing is he has to finish everything on his plate. It's almost like just an innate sense of, I have to eat everything on my plate, no matter if my plate's a little bit. And he'll never say that he wants more. He'll eat just what's on his plate and then he's done. So if you make a small plate, he's going to eat it. But if you make an extremely large plate, he's going to still eat all that and then he's going to be done. His mindset is whatever's on my plate, that's what I'm eating. And I don't know where that came from, if that was learned before he was placed into our home or what that comes from. So one big thing that we can do with our younger ones is establishing those healthy eating relationships. And I know we've talked a lot about this on previous podcasts, but like the division of responsibilities, this comes back into play you know, we're providing the food, they choose how much to eat, they choose what to eat. Um, with Down syndrome, one big thing I want to say is never use food as a reward, period, with your Down syndrome kids. Um, that's just not something, hey, we don't want to do it in our typically developing child, but with a Down syndrome kid, you're putting pressure on them with food that they don't need. Mm-hmm. Bribing a kid to eat, don't ever bribe. Um, force feeding, we don't ever want to force feed. And we also don't want to become a short order cook. Something else I've picked up on with Daniel is he figures people out on who he can play. And <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's just, he, he can figure out pretty quick on, hey, I can play you. I can get you to make me what I want or you're, you're going to do what I want. And he has that I guess way about it because he has Down syndrome. So A, people already feel sorry for him. And I hate that people do that, but they feel sorry for him. So automatically they're going to give him exactly what he wants. So don't be a short order cook just because your kid has Down syndrome or just because that child that you're treating has Down syndrome and they may not like the food that's placed in front of them. Mm-hmm. We still want to you know, eat what the rest of the family is eating or eat whatever mom or dad brought for that therapy session. Um, we don't want to be like working as a team. So important because we can figure out ways to modify what the family is eating to make it safe for that child, whether we're using special utensils, we're changing the positioning or, you know, chopping it into smaller pieces or whatever it is like we can modify it. And so with, you know, 
working with our families, a lot of times I will bring that up because they're like, oh no, there's no way they can eat the foods I'm eating. And it's like, okay, well, give me some examples of a meal. Let's see what, if we can maybe add one or two meals this week, how can we modify it? That's something you routinely eat because a lot of families eat the same meals over and over, like as much as we would like to explore, like reality is we know which meals that we're going to consistently eat and things that get brought up. And so being able to like modify it because it also builds onto that just exposure of the foods the family's eating. If they always get something different, they know kids are smart. They know something's different. And so when you do finally present them with something new, they're gonna be like, well, what is this? Like, where's my, where's my chicken nuggies? (laughs) Yeah. And I hate to say it, Down syndrome, A, typically they're always more stubborn. So if you're presenting them something new, they're, that stubbornness is probably going to come out a little bit more. which this kind of leads into behaviors. So we typically think that the Down syndrome child has bad behaviors. I'm using air quotes with bad behaviors, but it's not necessarily a behavior. So when we're looking at behaviors, we have to think of behavior as a form of communication. So with Down syndrome, a lot of them have difficulty communicating. So a lot of this stuff is going to come out as a behavior whenever we're thinking about these, if the behavior could talk, what would your child's behavior say? Mm-hmm. That's what we need to start looking at with these kids. So I'm going to use, once again, Daniel as an example. We all of a sudden started having issues with him melting down whenever we would ask him, hey, Daniel, it's time for dinner. Let's come to the dinner table. Well, we started just melting down it. No, I'm not eating dinner right now. No, I'm not right now. Um, to the point of where he's just going to stay in a totally separate room. So I had to start looking around of what was going on, what has changed with dinner time. Well, we have Harvey. Harvey's getting older, which means Harvey is talking more. Harvey is making noise more. He's trying to join in on conversations. He's walking around, he's screaming, he's banging on things. He's doing all sorts of stuff. So looking at the situation, it was way overstimulating for Daniel. So we were just having way too much going on. And at this point, we were also working on Daniel making his own plate, Daniel getting his own water, Daniel doing things for himself because Daniel's 13. It's time to be independent. It's time to put your skills to use on what you've been working in on therapy. We know you, you can make your breakfast. We know that you can make your plate. We know you can make your own water. But at this point, with everything going on and then me also adding to it of Daniel let's come to the dinner table Daniel get your plate out Daniel get this out it was just way too much for Daniel to go on um, typically we either have the tv going on in the background which you can't see the tv from where we sit and eat dinner at but that noise going on in the background or music going on we always, it's just a loud household and for Daniel it was just way too much so I had to eliminate turn the music off, turn the TV off or whatever else was going on. Um, Making sure that Harvey had his plate made. He was sitting at the table eating because if he's eating, then he's quiet. We're not really saying anything because he's shoveling food into his mouth at this point in time. Making sure that everyone else has their plates made, drinks, making sure that it was just a calm environment for him. That seemed to help with our meltdowns. Um, We have knock on wood. We have not had any meltdowns probably in about two months, I would say. Yeah. And I feel like that, like that just goes to show that if a child is dysregulated, 
they're not going to eat. So like they might, they maybe were hungry before, but now that they're coming to a situation where they feel stressed out, your hunger goes away. It's suppressed at that point because you're in fight or flight mode. You're like, I just have to survive this situation. And if I feel like I'm being pressured to come and eat, you know, it just makes you, it makes a kiddo feel nauseous. They, and then that's where the breakdown occurs. We're like, no, it's just too much. I just know like, and I'm just going to shut down from there. And I think, you know, kind of going back to where you're talking about the behaviors, like I always try to use the term response instead of behavior because behavior is such a negative connotation. And that's not what is meant by, by what the child is showing. They're doing it for a reason. It's a response to something. And it is our job as therapists to figure out what that is, to work with the family and say like, okay, what is it that's going on? in the environment, at the home, within the child, you know, like Brittany was saying, like, receptively, like, how are they feeling about what's going on? And then how can we modify that to make it so where their response is something different? Yeah, because 100% Daniel's response or behavior was because he can't communicate to me that there's just way too much going on. I can't focus. I just can't do that. He can't communicate that. So his way of saying it was, no, I'm not do that right now. I'm going to shut down and I'm going to sit right here on the couch and I'm not going to move because that's just over there. That's a zoo. And I can't be part of that zoo going on over there. I have felt that Daniel. Yeah. I have felt that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of bridging into Brittany, did you have anything else to add to that part before we kind of bridge into the next Um, I don't think so. I think you, I mean, you did a great job, you know, I'm I'm with you with, you know, behavior response is absolutely telling you something. Um, and I know I did want to go back a little bit to one thing with not becoming a short order cook. Um, you know, even in my own household, we've had to learn, you know, if with my four-year-old, she gets whatever we're eating goes on her plate with the understanding, she doesn't have to eat everything on the plate you know, but it's going to be there. And we've had a a lot of success with, as long as she's got at least one thing on her plate that she will eat and she has other things that may be new to her, had a lot of success with her trying those new things without that added pressure of, well, you have to eat this. This is what we're eating. So you have to eat it, even though I know you don't like it or you've never tried it before. Yeah. Um, So we have done that. And then even with using cookie, like treats as brides and stuff she'll ask me right before dinner well can I have a cookie and so instead of saying well you can have a cookie after you eat your dinner which I feel like is what I grew up with um it's sure you can have a cookie with dinner so I put the cookie on her plate sometimes it gets eaten and honestly sometimes it kind of sits there and her dinner gets eaten first and she kind of does that on her own so I think taking that pressure off of those like quote treat foods um is a helpful thing too No, for sure. Because if a child thinks that they can only get something once in a while, or, you know, it's not part of it, they're more likely to overindulge when it is there. Um, so if you allow them to have cookies, once they can have a cookie, they want to have like 10 of them and then they're going to get sick off them because otherwise they never have that opportunity to get cookies. Yeah. So I really try to take all the pressure off of food and it, it ends up being one of those things parents are the most stressed about because, you know, like you just went over all of the vitamins and stuff that these kids could be potentially deficient in. And as a parent, 
you're constantly worried, well, my kid's not eating this and I need that. I really need them to eat this food so that they have all of these calories and all of this, um, all these vitamins that they really need for their bodies. And I totally get that. I get the stress and the worry because I have it in my household too, but not letting that carry over into meal times in front of your kids, I think is huge because they pick up on that. They pick up on your worries and anxieties even with, with, especially with babies, when they're eating, they're going to pick up if you're scared of them, when they go to pick up a piece of food, they know that you're terrified. And then that makes them terrified and they're not going to manage that food. Well, mm-hmm. no, not at that's, all. that's where organizing those meals too, where you're like, whatever the family's having, you're having, because then you are modeling those foods. You are showing that those foods are safe and it's okay. And Um, you know, you remove the pressure so they can do it completely on their own, but it's super helpful because then, you know, by default, they're exposed to it. It's on their plate and they also see you eating it. And so it's like, oh, well, mom's eating it. Maybe, maybe it will be okay for me, even if it's in a modified form. Yeah. Hands down. And we definitely do the whole dessert with the meal. So if there's a dessert that we were going to have that night, typically it's served with the meal. Now we are starting something new with working with Daniel with scooping skills. So ice cream has been something we've been using and that's been usually after like Harvey goes to bed, we practice our scooping skills um, with just different things that might be water beads. And then we move to, Hey, let's scoop some ice cream just to work on independent type skills. But the whole serving the dessert with a meal, people always think that I'm crazy for suggesting that, but it takes the pressure off of it. And a lot of times that eating Beggett's eating, just like the old saying, like sleep, Beggett sleep, which makes sense. Your kid took a really good nap. Usually they sleep better that night. If your kid took a crappy nap, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to be up three or four times that night with that child. Um, so kind of use that with the eating Beggett's eating. And that has helped a lot of parents out with that. And also parents, you're doing great out there um, because I can go ahead and tell you, even as a dietitian, I sat down while I was serving dinner tonight, which was Chick-fil-A. And I realized I have not served a single vegetable today to my (laughs) child, period, at all. But it happens, right? All the time. Those days we had PT, we had OT, we had everything going on today. So you're like, I'm glad dinner is here. (laughs) and sometimes that is all you need to be grateful for absolutely absolutely so going into this last part um quickly you know different different other things that kiddos with with down syndrome might be at higher risk of okay so we all pretty much know congenital heart disease that's like number one issue with most of these kiddos knock on wood we lucked out daniel did not have any heart issues knock on wood Um, So far, his heart is still healthy, but as in the way of diet, there's nothing that you can really do for congenital heart disease. I'm going to touch on this in a different podcast um, with some infants and how typically if your infant does have congenital heart disease, they're tube fed, which is just like a whole different Mm -hmm. issue with nutrition and feeding. Um, Of course, they're all at higher risk for GERD. That's just... I think it goes back to the low muscle tone on why they're more at risk for GERD. So if they have GERD, simple things like eliminating high fat foods, which then again, sometimes high fat foods are great because you're getting in more calories, but limiting those high fat foods or giving them in smaller portions at smaller quantities with the meals. Um, 
that can help with it. Another thing is we like to say acidic foods. Some acidic foods, it's kind of a myth with the GERD. It's more of the fat that actually affects it than the acid, but the acid does still affect it along with caffeine, which hopefully you're just not giving your child caffeine. Let's be honest, kids don't need it. Um, Celiac disease, which I did not know about this one until I was doing some research on this, but apparently these kids are at higher risk of celiac disease. Mm -hmm. So just getting them tested, if you start noticing that they're having some GI issues um, or celiac, that's a pretty basic test if they're already getting a GI workup. Um, so that would just mean eliminating gluten for them. Constipation can be a big issue and that's going to come into play with a, their diet. Are they consuming high fiber foods? Are they consuming whole grains? What about their fluid intake? I can go ahead and tell you, Daniel's not going to sit down and drink water unless you pretty much make him say, okay, you're not getting up from the table until we finish this glass of water because we need to get some water in you today. I think he could go an entire day without drinking anything to be 100% honest. Um, as these kids get older, obesity, we know they're at high risk for obesity. That all comes into play with the whole, they're not as active um, and that low muscle tone. And then we're still gonna feed them the same stuff that we're feeding our typically developing kiddos when they don't need as much. That also comes into play with that satiety cues. Um, just because I, like Brie and I were saying earlier, we're wondering maybe is that just the slower delay in response or do they just not have that satiety cue like your typically developing kid does um constipation treatment like i said they a they have low muscle tone already so that means that low muscle tone carries over into the gi tract decreased activity that's also going to play a role in constipation movement creates movement <laughs> it does um and then I'm going to touch on obesity just a little bit more. So hypothyroidism can be the reasoning for obesity as well. So a lot of these kids have undiagnosed hypothyroidism. So make sure your pediatrician, doctor, whoever your child's going to is testing for this regularly. It sucks because they've got to draw blood. And let's be honest, our Down syndrome kids already don't like this kind of stuff. Um, poor Daniel has this done every year. And I think he's in tears and I'm in tears and it's awful, but make sure your kids are getting that test done um, because that could be the reason for their obesity and that can be fixed. I think that's pretty much all I have with nutrition concerns. Like yeah. I said, we're going to go into more detail with the congenital heart disease and tube feeding and all that in a different episode. Yeah. No, I think that was great. And Brittany, I super appreciate you getting on here and talking from the OT side because as we talk about in every episode, like interdisciplinary collaboration is so important. And especially with the Down syndrome population, there, a lot of them are going to need multiple disciplines on their, on their plane of care. And so it's important for us to reach out to you and talk to you about these things and just know from an OT standpoint, where are you coming from when you're thinking about your plan of care and how we can best, you know, work together to create a, a more positive environment and better progress with these kiddos. Absolutely. This was fantastic. I love learning from you guys. And, um, you know, I feel the same way about interdisciplinary um, approaches. I work with PTs and SLPs um, all day. And Olivia, I'm excited to start working with you soon. Um, I've got a few kiddos that I need you to come check out um, and help me with. 
Uh, so yeah, it's really fun. Thanks for tuning in today. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the feeding pod. And from there, you can click on the link either for Brie or myself, Olivia. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you'll leave us a review and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.